But the one thing that you like to do is you like to involve the community and we're talking English and all that. And I'm like, eh, fuck that shit. Just, you know, go pure. But that's what's happening. You can't get out of that. Well, I know we're in it. Yeah, because you're in it. So mention it. Why? Why is it? Because otherwise you're a fish. Swimming in the water that you don't know is there. No, we just removed the part where we don't know it's there. We just kind of, you know, we don't talk about it because we don't need to. If you don't talk about something, you forget it very swiftly. <laughs> but it's... I think we need to make this stuff explicit. No. Lest we... I think uh, we just need to have a philosopher on hand to be like, wait, wait, what's, what's least in least squares? Oh, God. <laughs> just to remind us that there's fucking explicit things that you want with your you and Alfred Korzybski. It's easy to become hypnotized by language. So that we need to keep mentioning that, oh yeah, we're all swimming around in a bunch of water. Oh, it's yeah, uninspired. Right. Okay. It's not fun. It's not interesting. It just is kind of bogs everything down in extra details. And you just kind of don't even want to bother. That's why I don't like it. You know, not everything has to be fun, you punk. Every, you know, Kids. I goddamn kids. Get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, I know. Jesus Christ. I want something aesthetic and pretty. And I know there's lots of scientists out there like, oh, just because it's pretty doesn't mean it's true, or whatever. Uh, just because it's pretty, you should doubt it extra. Because being pretty just means tickling your chimp. Your aesthetic judgments are not determined by any cognitive mechanism. What? You're not, you that don't choose a- what you think is pretty. What you think is pretty is determined by something out of your control. Well, that's your I, I accept evolutionary that. and developmental heritage. Absolutely, and that's not something that we ought to epistemically value or trust in any way, because that's not a. It doesn't track anything. It's oh, what? It starts. Get out of here. No, absolutely not. It's it it it's the the. It, it may be that aesthetic appeal or whatever is is a chimpy quality and and i'm fine with that i'm not disagreeing but it's a a quality that brings me closer otherwise i'm not gonna go towards it and i am a little wondering if your whole aesthetic quality is just different and that all this explicit detail and the consistencies and all that kind of shit is all just something that you are is aesthetically appealing to your chimp and we're all just a bunch of fucking chimps and so long as we keep moving forward and we keep talking to each other and having dissonance between our different aesthetic appeals then we start to maybe let ourselves kind of get acquainted with our biases and maybe become a little more honest and try to do a better job as much as possible even though secretly we think the earth is only 6,000 years old or something like that. That's a joke. From 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 the, the from An the inside fucking, joke you know for Doddler's fans. <laughs> One critique that I've received about this podcast to get a little meta is that we agree too much. So here, perhaps, we found a region of current disagreement that we could attempt to resolve in a future episode. Why Harland is wrong. Episode yeah. 23. <laughs> Best one. 
Save it for 23. I don't know. time glad i found them nice very uh you've got your is that a soda or a beer i i i'm, I'm drinking tea oh yeah i i guess we're both being responsible tonight this is just a sparkling water <laughs> christ all right well there you go folks <laughs> turn it's 2019 you know clean, what kind of episode this is gonna be uh, hopefully it's one that ends in just sobbing. Uh, you know, I hope for that. I really, really do. I hope so. I could Gosh, make that happen for you. <laughs> just tell me what What are the things that a person would need to say to you than everybody else listening would all our, you know, 15.9 listeners. Maybe that would be a good gimmick to get some attention. Just like the sobbing philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'd get no sympathy from other philosophers, I imagine. They'd be like, quit your crying. Anyway, Jesus, the banter. What what are we talking about tonight, Ryan? Huh, glad you asked, Ryan. Oh, wait, by the way, I'm Ryan. <laughs> I'm Harland. And what are we talking about tonight? Okay. Uh... <laughs> So I guess I want to say that this topic is something fuzzy because I have, I don't, you know, because we do this shit so fucking frequently. I'm like, I can't focus my brain farts on this shit. Anyway, it's kind of about the role of aesthetics in modeling, or you could say the role of aesthetics in theory. Ooh. Most specifically... Theory and modeling, I kind of like, yeah, isn't that, you know, I mean, it's not all the same thing, of course, but sometimes they can join together and be sort of one and the same, especially when it's the beginning of what maybe ultimately becomes some kind of more fleshed out theory or something. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. So, um, this past Christmas, Christmas, as people will be able to tell from the fine fancy editing from the beginning of this uh it's about aesthetics and i just said it was about aesthetics but whatever um i'm all over the place i got a book i got a book for christmas for my mommy and it's by sabina hossenfelder she's a german no you're kidding me german (laughs) 
Well, I mean, she could be from Washington State. I don't know. The accent gives it away. Although, based on her writing, you wouldn't be able to tell. She sounds like... I want to say she sounds like one of us, but I don't know if that's... Who's patting who on the back? Anyway, called Lost in Math, if you didn't know. And it was, like, published in, like... It was this past summer or something like that. So it's, you know, still... A hardcover on the shelves and all that. Hot so off the presses. That's <laughs> right. And uh, the ink is so... I can hardly read it. It's smearing all over the place. Anyway, uh, I didn't... It's just sort of coincidence that, you know, sometimes I like to mention things about aesthetics and modeling and all that. And that this book came out. I mean, I'd always heard of this individual. I don't know if you had. I've, I've run across... Just her, I don't know, in the intelligentsia of this Western civilization or whatever. I run across it. It's, it's anyway. She's a physicist uh, who whose work research focuses on sort of the foundations of physics. So uh, she's a, at the very least, <laughs> no pun intended, a methodological reductionist. Uh, I don't know. I see in reading the book, I don't know if she would be considered an ontological reductionist, whatever that episode was. Episode five, seven, six, five, five. Go, go, yeah! <laughs> the emergence one. I don't know if she goes that far because she certainly talks about emergence, not like in any deep way, just talking about it, and especially in relation to reductionism. And of course, the main focus of the book is just how she thinks her discipline. I don't know if I should call her a particle physicist. You know what I mean? She's a theoretical physicist. And she focuses her mathematical capabilities upon the really small quantum level subatomic foundations of physics. You know, the universe kind of thing. Anyway, she's just pissed off about how she thinks that essentially what most of the people in this field are doing is just making appeals to beauty and aesthetics and just have this deep feeling almost if you will that if it's if your model is beautiful then it touches the truth you know or whatever it's closer to that it tells you more about what's going on and if it's ugly it's way off you know that kind of a thing so she's saying that that's what physicists are doing that's part of their evaluation mechanism is it conscious to them the no not really well sort of it's hit or miss theoretical physicists working in the foundations of physics that foundational physics stuff they're the ones she's talking about she makes a point in interviews with people today because of the book or whatever to say "Eh, she thinks the cosmologists are fine and you know whatever like she doesn't think that everybody's out to lunch she just thinks that this her group of people are primarily not with it and i'm one question i have is in her opinion do the people do the physicists who are operating based on aesthetic judgments doing that on purpose are they aware of it is this something they know and are trying to do or is she saying they think they're really getting at the truth, but what they're really doing is just saying something is pretty. No, they, it's the first first one. They know what they're doing, and they think that 
if you have beauty, then you have you know a picture of the universe or whatever. Okay. They think those things are kind of one and the same, synonymous. You know, if there's smoke, there's fire. If there's beauty, there's truth, or something like that. It's that that's a gross generalization, but you know, roughly, that's you know to get the point across. Sure. And if it's not too much foreshadowing, what is her thoughts on that? Fucking bullshit. Ah. <laughs> she does not like it. She is against. Okay. She, she should have written her book called Against Beauty or something. <laughs> like, you know, against method. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, so, yeah. However, I kind of thought that if we're going to talk about aesthetics, something that she, I don't think, does. But I want to at least try to is kind of touch on any philosophy of aesthetics that is just the tip of the iceberg, you know? Because there's a whole group of researchers out there. You know, there's people so far embedded in aesthetics, right, that they they don't even, they don't even care about, like, how it applies necessarily to the sciences or whatever. They're just sort of like, what is art, you know? And they want to talk about, you know, the various ways that art is expressed and, you know, whatever. I'm Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of that. Collingwood guy or whatever. I would have thought that most estheticians, I don't even know what they're called, because that's mm. like a cosmetologist, right? If you an esthetician, but whatever. That they <laughs> would not be interested very much in physics. I would I think of it more yeah. as a wine glass in hand looking at a Rothko style <laughs> activity. Yeah, I, I I would imagine that it's probably a lot of fun. I would hope, anyway. Um, because, yeah, you've got your drink, and you've got your turtleneck, your tight black turtleneck. You're hanging out with some architect and an artist of some kind, and you're like, well, you have to understand, you know, or whatever, as if you were saying something profound. It's great. Anyway, but so I just want to just... I don't. I feel like it would be an incomplete discussion if we didn't include something about a little bit from philosophy of aesthetics, at least in the general sense of it. Um, I have learned no real lessons in the philosophy of aesthetics. You know, like I didn't go to school or whatever, right? So uh, not for philosophy of anything. So uh, I just did a real like toe dip, <laughs> you know, where you're like, I just got to like make mention because I, I like having a well-rounded, podcast episode of course so i went and i just i looked around and i the one that felt i felt most comfortable with without having to like download a book or buy a book or whatever was just doing the um stanford encyclopedia philosophy and of course everything there's like plato's aesthetics you know uh hume's aesthetics you know like you know, you know, uh, Collingwood's and all that kind of stuff. But then there was just one that was just like aesthetics. And I was like, <laughs> go in there. And, uh, so there's, as far as I can tell, two kinds of theses related to aesthetics that everything else kind of, kind of springs off of. I'm guessing this is like philosophy of aesthetics one-on-one kind of stuff. Well, we'll see. That's the one and only one that I took way back when. And this is not right. a, a branch that I have pursued since. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm hoping, though, that 
<clears throat> anything I'm confused about, you won't be equally confused about. And so that'll be good. Let's see. Now, I want to quickly say that I think a lot of this, at least how the person structured, and they they don't usually give the authors for Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, right? Which is kind of... You mean right? who wrote that article? That. Yeah, it's down yeah. on the very bottom usually, yeah. Oh, it's on the bottom. Jesus, sorry. Anyway, sorry, whoever you are. So that person, who's not going to be getting any credit <laughs> at the moment. Anyway, they kind of couched the whole thing in this, like, the main players for some of this stuff would be like Hobbes and Hutchinson and Hume and Kant, uh, you know, people like that, where this sort of, I'm thinking, 101 level shit gets structured. So there's these two ideas or theses or whatever. One is called the immediacy thesis. And the other one is called the disinterested thesis. Does this at all sound similar from way, way, probably decades or decade and a half ago or whenever it was you took it? Does this sound familiar yet? As of this evening, I would say I've never heard of either of those terms. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Crap. Do you have your aesthetics textbook? Or they probably didn't even have one. Yeah, I have an aesthetics textbook still. Is it like, can you reach back and grab it or... What? No. Everybody, hang on! <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you need to be thumbing through while I read this shit. I, I literally could reach for it, but I don't. you don't mean that, right? Are you kidding? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, nothing's off the table. So, okay, the immediacy thesis. Judgments, okay, it's a quote. <laughs> There's going to be lots of quotes tonight, folks. Quote. uh, Judgments of beauty are not, or at least not canonically, mediated by inferences from principles or applications of concepts, but rather have all the immediacy of straightforwardly sensory judgments. End quote. I don't know how much I like the way that's written. But uh, just to kind of sort of try and summarize or whatever... The idea is that, you know, we do not reason to a conclusion that something is beautiful. We taste it as beautiful. You know, quote, unquote, taste it as beautiful. And this is about concepts of taste. I apologize. I did not at all give that whole bit because I am me. Anything to say about that or shall I move to the disinterested and then we can talk or whatever? Yeah, throw that one out. I think I get the first one. What's the second one? Disinterested thesis. This one is harder for me, so I'm just paraphrasing. It's, you know, to take pleasure in things without any motivation for sort of selfish gains. So, like, you know, hunger or sex or whatever. Like, you know, it's not associated with that, this idea of tastes in aesthetics. It's like seeing a sunset and finding it very attractive or whatever. You know, I think that's kind of more as I interpret this idea of this disinterested thesis. That, how does that feel on you? <clears throat> what are these to be theses of? T- uh, concepts of taste in, uh, in aesthetics. And so I think those things are kind of all sort of joined together. Well, I don't know, again, anything about this. But when you said those two things, the analogies that came into my head were, for the first one... It's uh, the old cliche, is the act good 
because God declared that it is good, or did God declare that it's good because it already, you know, it was good first, and then he recognized it and said that it was. And so this immediacy thesis is like, no, the nothing is beautiful because dot, dot, dot. Beauty just is immediately. You don't get your beauty by any, by possessing any other quality. It's intrinsic. And then for the second one, I was hearing, what was the second one? (laughs) (laughs) The idea that you'd take pleasure in something without any kind of motivation for selfish gains. There's not self-interest. Yeah. You know? Oh, hmm. Maybe I'm also not catching this one because I, what that reminded me of was the, you, when you do something for its own sake. It, like an ends in itself type thing that we would pursue beauty simply for its own sake we just want to appreciate that or whatever but maybe, maybe. that's not what that's about i don't know i don't know they had it all wrapped up into morals and it's like i hate to say it but i'm sort of um dyslexic when it comes to hearing about like value judgments and morals and ethics and and virtue and i'm just sort of like cutting through for the basic kind of thing because they were trying to like somehow it got all tangled up in that and um i guess in a way that's sort of a thing if you were to take the idea of moral and morality or whatever and make it really large as a value judgment based thing where there's good and bad then that's going to apply to what comes next you know with all the foundations of physics people mm-hmm. the theoretical physicists but still i kind of still just wanted to get a sense of what the heart of it was about maybe it makes more sense with the moral stuff sorry all you philosophers of aesthetics who are like what the fuck you butchered jesus christ motherfuckers so i don't know but i wanted to kind of just sort of hit upon that um to at least maybe have it out there so maybe you and I can go back to it if yep. we think it's something we can go back to. Otherwise, I'm not quite sure what else it's supposed to be able to do. Um, but I, at least I wanted something, you know? I'll be watching for a place to reference it. Goodness. Value judgmentness. Okay. Well, anything else uh, you wanted to say about anything here? Or you uh, feeling... I have a taste for moving forward. (laughs) But don't be disinterested, please. Okay, well, recall the... You'll have to tell me the episode number, but it was the Muckrakers... 19. (laughs) Son-in-law. Anyway, in in that one, we we talked about the the, sort of the, the figures that you don't look at, but I'm like almost solely look at, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I have to read... So there was this figure in the George E.P. Box paper that was called Science and Statistics, where he was trying to talk about essentially this sort of feedback loop between theory formation, if you will, and sort of how it's compared to whatever data you have, because you have some kind of expectations or predictions from that, you know, hypothesis, really, in, in science. So it's a very provisional thing. You know, so you then test it and it goes through, you know, of course it's developed and then it's 
you know, you create whatever the expectations and predictions are. Hopefully, if you're honest, you put out a protocol ahead of time. And you say, this is what I set out to do. And then you go and you collect the data and you see if it compares well enough. And if things are way off or whatever, whatever the means upon which, whatever the methods are that you use to assess how well your model and the data are, you know, fitting each other and the, you know, the expectations, et cetera, are satisfied. Then, you know, whatever else is left, then you try and work out the details of that. And if, if it happens to be that the, you know, you're half wrong or three quarters wrong or whatever, maybe you, and you feel, still feel like you got something with the original hypothesis, there's some nugget in there that you want to work with. Then you, you know, start to work on making changes to the particular hypothesis that was initially that you started with. And then maybe you, you, you make it change because you've got new data. And I guess right off the bat, just so, you know, here's an additional thing. This was uh, from Sabina Hassenfelder in the book. And she, so quick little uh, quote, I guess. And it's essentially just, she was just saying, you know, it's, she goes, it's the ability to adapt to new evidence that marks the true scientist. And that was one of her little things that she said. And I think what she's trying to say there is something similar that, you know, don't be so hard nosed about it, you know, except when you, you know, or accept defeat, you know, when it's not working, that kind of thing. And I think that's sort of the same feedback loop that George Box was talking about. Ideally, you're honest about how well your hypothesis performed, and then you make modifications based on whether or not you feel like you should continue on with that same basic components that you think are important, or maybe you just trash it and go to something else. Anyway. Yeah, don't fall in love with your your lone child. Children. Episode yeah. 17. Wow. We're just like episode dropping instead of name dropping. <laughs> yeah. So, anything to say about... Anything there? Anything jumping out to you? No. Excellent. How you feeling, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 with respect to sobbing? 10 being complete, utter, just like dehydration sobbing, and 1 being just like, eh, I don't feel anything. I'm closer to disinterest than sobbing at the moment. But you're going <laughs> to okay. you're gonna really hook us next. <laughs> so anyway, so... At another point in the book, she's talking about being at this conference that I remember various philosophers were all excited about because this one particular philosopher of science had written a, a book called String Theory and the Scientific Method named Richard, I think it's David, but it's a W instead of a V in the name, the last name. Anyway, he was bringing together all these physicists and philophilers in Munich. And it was here where the idea was that, you know, people really wanted to figure out whether, you know, what they wanted, what they understood about string theory and whether or not it, it's just a pretty idea or it should be tested or not. And I think, as far as I recall, that there are some that want to say, hey, we don't need data for, you know, we want to change the scientific method, whatever that is. But, you know, let's just say more or less it's something like this GEP box idea, this feedback loop that I was talking about. And, um, you know, we, want, we don't want to have to necessarily compare our theories to data or whatever. We want to, 
we want to compare them to, you know, other types of, you know, modeling. And so one of the things that she says that she got out of the conference was, quote, what I learned is that Karl Popper's idea that scientific theories must be falsifiable has long been an outdated philosophy. I'm glad to hear this, as it's a philosophy that nobody in science ever could have used, other than as a rhetorical device. It is rarely possible to actually falsify an idea, since ideas can always be modified or extended to match incoming evidence. Hence, George P. Bach's feedback loop. Rather than falsifying theories, therefore, we, quote, unquote, implausify them. A continuously adapted theory becomes increasingly difficult and arcane, not to say ugly, and eventually, practitioners lose interest. How much it takes to implausify an idea, however, depends on one's tolerance for repeatedly making a theory fit conflicting evidence. End quote. So anyway, so there's that kind of, there's a little bit more there that I think she kind of echoes sort of the box stuff. And and anyway, we haven't gotten to the aesthetic stuff yet, really, but there's just, we're creeping up on it, I hope. Yep. What I heard in that was, I think, what they called the Quine Duhem thesis about the underdetermination of theory by evidence and the web of belief and how one can, if you wish, alter enough nodes in your web that you can accommodate any apparent anomalies and maintain any sections of the theory that you want, but it might require a larger alteration of your web. I have always been more sympathetic to that than Popper-style falsification. It seems oversimplified. It doesn't seem that the sociologists of science who look at what the lab coat-wearing human beings actually do all day don't seem to do falsification. Uh, Yeah, so I'm on board. I feel like we're all converging here. Do you feel the convergence? So yeah, all right, good. And I've heard that stuff before, but not enough for me to feel comfortable. And I'm not a big reader into Quine Duheim or Duhem or Duhem or Do Whoever. Um, but I've heard of that stuff sprinkled throughout. Okay, great, good business. Yeah, we'll do an episode on it later on. Nice. We'll reference this one. <laughs> okay, so the next thing then. To kind of, I think this is sort of, as I'm kind of interpreting the layering that she's got going on. So the next kind of big chunk then to mention is that what, or at least one in particular theoretical physicist who's sort of a big name, I guess, you know, a rock star, you know, and whatever it is that he did, people were pleased with it. So then he went to Berkeley and then from Berkeley he went to, um, was it Chicago or something like that? And then from there he went to Princeton and, you know, the advanced studies or whatever that department's called, you know, he's just down the hall from fucking Freeman Dyson. His name is Nima Arkani Ahmed. And in particular, like I'm guessing, I don't know if his opinion is, a, is an opinion of many, but the idea is that like the foundations of physics is like under like incredible, theoretical and empirical constraints. And it's because in a lot of ways, 
they've had a ton of success, you know, with respect to coming up with theories and doing the data testing and modeling and just kind of keep moving along. And they've just, they've had success. And the more success you have, the harder it is then once you run into real problems down the line, the harder it is to then just, you know, in order to remodel something, that would mean you'd have to go back to the successes that you had prior and figure out where things went wrong back there. And maybe people, um, this uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, she talks, and we're going to get to it, but there's a whole bunch of biases and fallacies that she's talking about. And she kind of outlines them. But this sounds a bit like a sunk cost fallacy thing where halfway to the grocery store, realize you forgot your wallet, and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to the grocery store. (laughs) You know, it's just sort of, you know, one of those things, maybe. So she... She talks about sort of the this idea that that it's just really incredible. There's just a ton of constraints. So this is sort of ho- hopefully setting up. You know, talked about aesthetics a little bit. Talked about you know just sort of what we think science kind of is. And you've even brought in a few new characters, and we're converging on that a little bit. And then you know just at least how science is done or whatever. And now it's like okay, here's this mature field. Uh, the you know theoretical physicists trying to figure out you know the bottom of existence or whatever, and they're stuck. And so, every, here's a quote: <laughs> Every time we solve a problem, it becomes more difficult to change anything about today's theories without reproblematizing issues that we've already solved. And so, the fundamental laws of nature we now have seem unavoidable consequences of past achievements. This inescapability of the existing theories is often referred to as rigidity. It raises our hopes that we already know everything necessary to find a more fundamental theory and that being smart will be sufficient to find it. One way to look at this situation is to say that rigidity is desirable because it signals that a theory is close to uniquely fitting our observations. The other way to look at it is that rigidity means we have reached a dead end, must revisit long-solved problems, and look for a path not taken. So I just found found that that was interesting because I think this is kind of motivation to an extent, not all entirely, but this is a motivation to maybe even reinforce some of the sort of the beauty seeking that happens. And her main thing is to say, well, we're at this point, we need to maybe do something different rather than keep looking for beauty. Anyway, I'll probably echo that later as well tonight. Anything jumping out for you at all? Or One thing that reminds me of is I think it was just the previous episode to this, which would have been, what, 22? Uh, where, we, where I was complaining that philosophy, what's the opposite of rigid? Squishy? Flexible? That philosophy is not rigid enough. And Mm. because that there's some progress that can be made, at least down certain paths, not necessarily, in my opinion, toward the truth, but you can make progress if you ossify a few things and get a skeleton going, that now we can run. And if philosophy is just a pile of goo in the swamp, that it's can be pretty hard to get anywhere. So it sounds like Hassan 
Pfeffer, Hossenfelder, <laughs> is yeah. pointing out a potential negative of rigidity or excessive rigidity. But I, there also seem to me to be some potential benefits. Yeah, when I've, when in reading this book, and then I also just want to get a feel for seeing if the voice in the book is the same voice in the interviews. I mentioned this earlier. There were some area uh, podcast or uh, radio interviews or whatever where I thought things were a little too stiff, rigid. <laughs> um, and so she didn't, she wasn't able to like, I wasn't able to detect the voice, but in other ones, I was able to detect the, her voice. And I, she seems just sort of like, when it comes to this stuff, she cares very deeply about it. And it's a, you know, it's an insane passion or whatever. So she seems when she's talking about, when people ask her questions about whatever, uh, that, she, you know, uh, string theory or any of these, you know, the standard model or supersymmetry or any of these things, uh, she seems to get really frustrated like she's just kind of like god damn it you know one of those kind of things and then as far as i can tell from the interviews when people have asked her do your colleagues what do they say and she's basically like it's like crickets you know so other people in other fields in physics are like huh yeah, i'm glad you said that cuz i always suspected dot 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 you know but so I, anyway i just had to make that little aside as a little more context to the individual who's driving some of this and did you have anything else? Nope. I, I didn't want to move on without. You'll interrupt anyway. You're right. You feel strongly. <laughs> so, but then, so I guess one of the things that they talk about physicists, and I think this is one of the reinforcing things, this constraints bit, is they talk about these arguments from beauty or arguments from naturalness. I want to be able to, I, I, I it's funny, I haven't really defined or found, I, I'm sure she did define naturalists naturalism or no naturalness <laughs> but uh whatever it's okay naturalness like one of the things that she says quote today we call a theory natural if it does not contain numbers that are either very large or very small so this is very much then from the perspective of theoretical physicists today modern ones that's that's it that's the definition of natural that's no, no. Oh. For theoretical physicists, when they're talking about naturalness, they're like, oh, yeah, it's natural or whatever. That's kind of the idea is that the output in the models are not like these huge, crazy, huge numbers or really, really teeny tiny numbers. You know, they're, you know, they seem, you know, uh, I don't know, appropriate or whatever. This might be more aesthetics. I hear aesthetics. <laughs> so this is what she says to try and give maybe a better sense for this idea of naturalness and the idea that an appeal to naturalness uh, will come from, you know, well, it's just how I, you know, it, it just makes sense, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, these, if you have really large numbers or really small numbers, it, it provokes, it requires some kind of explanation. And that's what they, I guess, call fine-tuned. It's not the same thing as the cosmology thing, fine-tuned universe or whatever. But it's, you know, you're you're having to, like, tune your parameters to match up or whatever or try and explain why something, why a value is so huge or whatever. So she was saying one of the first appeals that she thinks to naturalists was the rejection of a heliocentric model, you know, that the 
you know, sun's in the center of our solar system. Clouds. If Earth goes around the sun, then the star's apparent positions should change over the course of the year. The magnitude of this change, known as, quote-unquote, parallax, depends on the distance to the stars. The farther away the star, the smaller the apparent change in position. You could see a similar effect when you're on a train watching the landscape go by. Nearby trees move much faster through your field of view than the skyline of a distant city. The stars do indeed slightly change their position over the course of the year, but the shift is so minuscule that astronomers couldn't measure it until the 19th century. The best they could do before that was to estimate that the absence of observable parallax meant that either Earth itself wasn't moving during the year, or the stars had to be very, very far away, much farther away than the sun and the other planets, in which case the parallax would be tiny. This would have allowed the sun to be in the center. But it was an option they discarded because it required them to accept unexplainably large numbers. Picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah, I think so, yeah. That... I thought you were going to say extremely small numbers, but not that there's a big difference between extremely large and small. It's just the decimal point, right? Where it goes. But that I like that example, and it makes sense to me. And it works for those of us who are, in general, hostile to using aesthetic judgments in science. If we're going to reject the stars are far away possibility hypothesis because the parallax number that would be required like how yeah. far they would act that's the largeness i guess how the distance that they would have to be right to make their parallax indetectably small is right. too large of a number I, I cannot conceive of this i refuse and you know that yeah i think that's Poor reasoning, but prevalent. Yeah, so that to me is a good example as to perhaps what's going on to some extent with respect to the theoretical physicists today working on the foundations of physics. But, you know, sadly, I I didn't in my prep, didn't think to give the examples of like really large and really small numbers that they are dealing with right now and to why they're, you know, maybe throughout at least the 20th century and into this 21st century have been trying to deal with some of those things. And so, yeah, there's, there's that whole thing, but then thinking about not just sort of the, well, I, you know, I, I, how can the sun be in the center? Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make any sense. Cause you'd have to have these inconceivable measures that I can't wrap my brain around. But then there's the other way that it goes where, you know, you're wrapping your brain around something and it's, and I'm going to get into this hopefully a little bit from now, the idea that there is a, like a neurotransmitter, like a dopamine hit or whatever that happens when things, when things are beautiful, when they do unfold in a nice way, you know? And so she talks a little bit about Werner Heisenberg, the uncertainty principle guy. So I just, I have more quotes. This is just like chock full of quotes, chock full of nuts for all you 
people who grew up in the eighties and before. <laughs> I don't know if Chock Full of Nuts is still out there. I've deleted it from my brain. Okay, quote. <laughs> Chock Full of Nuts. Quote. <laughs> Two scoops. Just the marshmallows. If nature leads us... Oh, this is... I'm sorry. This is her... Ah! That's all right. Whatever. This is her quoting (laughs) Werner Heisenberg. He says, If nature leads us to mathematical forms of great simplicity and beauty, we cannot help thinking that they are quote-unquote true, that they reveal a genuine feature of nature then she says the sabina as his wife recalls one moonlit night we walked over the heinberg mountain and he was Werner heisenberg completely enthralled by the visions he had trying to explain his newest discovery to me he talked about the miracle of symmetry as the original archetype of creation, about harmony, about the beauty of simplicity and its inner truth. And then Sabina goes, Beware the moonlight walks with theoretical physicists. Sometimes enthusiasm gets the better of us. I just like that one a lot, just because it's like, I've had, I hate to say it, I've had those moments. Um, You know? I mean, this is... uh, Full disclosure kind of podcast, right? Not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it depends. If you get selective about the fullness of the disclosed. But I've definitely had that. I mean, that was, I remember when I, I mean, literally, it wasn't Hainberg Mountain, but it was, and it wasn't, it was in the daytime. But I remember having that kind of thing with my wife where I was talking about episodic synchrony and just, it was this new idea in my head that things worked like somehow, like it, it worked like before I had been mulling and nothing worked, you know, and I didn't understand anything. And all of a sudden the tumblers clicked into place, you know, or whatever. The bath overflowed. And I, it felt good at least. I mean, I've since been up and down about these things. And it wasn't Hainberg Mountain, it was Mount Tabor. But yeah, like, so I, I, in some ways I'm like, you know, enthusiasm gets the better of us, but, you know, let me have a little enthusiasm. All right, anyway, I won't start us down that path right now. I'm just letting it creep in a little. Save it. <laughs> uh, and what was the episodic synchrony, that episode? You have to rattle 16? it off. Jesus, fuck memorize these things how's it going to be this is like good mental exercise it's probably like you don't realize how much this is like helping you beat alzheimer's at an older age or something so what's an example then of you know this aesthetic beauty you know simplicity all that kind of thing all that stuff the 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 one that i wanted to kind of highlight at least which just seems to be at least in say the standard model and a lot of these other areas of physics is uh, symmetry which i think we all have some sense for right you know you open a book and each half of the book is sort of the same you know dimensions or whatever it's not like you've got a you know it's it's not asymmetrical right you know we look at 
you know, the bilateral symmetry of organisms or, you know, the way flowers are, you know, the, they, people who talk about, you know, the, uh, kinds of judgments people make about the health and attractiveness of others or whatever, if they're going to want to mate or something, you know, they talk about, you know, the golden ratio and how that symmetry is involved in the human face and things like that. So symmetry is kind of one of those sort of measurable things that we can at least talk about when it comes to beauty and aesthetics and stuff like that. And so goes it for theoretical physics, even though they're often dealing with very, very abstract math. Um, so quote, the presence of a symmetry always reveals a redundancy and allows simplification. Hence, symmetries explain more with less. For example, rather than telling you today's sky looks blue in the west and the east and the north and the south and the southwest and so on, I can just say it looks blue in every direction. So I think doing that kind of stuff in the very fairly complicated, difficult mathematics of theoretical physics and applying it to things that, you know, maybe experimental physicists and the field in general are working on, that could be a source of like, great, like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> like there could be, you know, the endorphins and the dopamine and all that shit pumping through your system. As soon as you find one of those symmetrical explanations you mean where you can condense yeah you can you can converge on stuff even i just a little bit ago was all like oh when you were mentioning quine and the web and stuff and i was you know box and it's oh you know we, we might get we might be talking about the same thing you know or whatever so yeah so there's that do you have any uh additional uh things i've heard this word mentioned in the context of physics a lot, but I don't think I totally appreciate what it means. And I don't know if you have it on the tip of your tongue. But what is symmetry in physics? Symmetry in physics, it, it's it's kind of like, it. I guess it has a lot to do with sort of uh, balance. If you can say one thing about a particular kind of... Uh, uh, like, you know, they talk about it in very abstract ways, but, you know, they talk about rotations and flips and, you know, you can go one way, you can go the other, you know, or maybe a particle has some kind of uh, complementary particle, you know, uh, out there, or it has, you know, it's been given some type of complementary charge or whatnot. Like, I think that's in general what they mean by symmetry. I, I could have butchered that, but I... That's sort of what pops into my head when you're when you ask that question. And do they treat symmetry similarly to how some of us treat parsimony? That any model that is more symmetrical than another is preferable by some sort of value choice or what it like, it might be the case that a less parsimonious explanation is more true. We don't we don't know that parsimony leads to truth in some way, but there are various arguments to indicate 
why we are going to go that way most of the time. Whatever. Is it in that weight class or? I I don't think it is because I, I don't know. I, I would say I don't know. I don't think it is exactly in the same weight class. It sounds like it it would be based on what I said and what you are talking about. But I think it's more about, at least maybe for theoretical physicists at this level, it's more about if your model can explain all the behaviors, no matter how many parameters it has. Okay, well, we'll press on. The big thing that she talks a lot about that apparently when she does, her theoretical physicist or physics colleagues are all like, oh, you know, <laughs> there is just like biases, you know, and fallacies and those kinds of things. And they don't want to so hear about that, huh? They're like, get your social shit out of here. <laughs> Whatever. So, you know, she talks about things like confirmation bias, right? We've, we've all heard about that. She, she says, quote, if you search for the literature to, for support for your argument, there it is. If you look for a mistake because your result didn't match your expectations, there it is. If you avoid the person asking nagging questions, there it is. So, like, that's the kind of thing there that she's talking about. She also mentions, like I mentioned before, the sunk cost fallacy. Halfway to the grocery store, you realize you don't have your wallet, but you're going to go to the grocery store anyway, God damn it. And then she talks about like all these other ones, in-group bias, shared information bias. There's all these ones. Uh, one where uh, we like to discover patterns in noise, which is called apophenia, apparently. Um, there's something called belief bias. It's just like, you know, like, you know, we think arguments are stronger if the conclusion seems plausible. And there's something called the halo effect, which is basically if you're a Nobel Prize winner and you say something, everyone's like, oh, that's great. So she's mentioning all of these things. One of the ones, though, that she does mention that I thought was interesting and might be able to tie back is tie it back to like Putnam when we were talking last time. It's something called the false consensus effect. Quote, we tend to overestimate how many other people agree with us and how much they do so. And one of the most problematic distortions in science is that we consider a fact to be more likely the more often we've heard it. This is called attentional bias or the mere exposure effect. We pay more attention to information, especially when it's repeated by others in our community. But I was thinking this idea that we have, we overestimate who agrees with us or whatever. It's sort of like, here, you've heard this thing a thousand times, but you don't you don't connect it to anything. You don't go back and figure out where you got it from and how it's related to these other things. It's just this little intuition cloud that floats around. And when you hear it or when you think it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and you keep going. I don't know how, if, if that rings with you, that resonates at all. But I thought of that. Well, you know, uh, people are saying... <laughs> I, I've heard I've heard it said that uh Yeah, exactly. Rumor has <laughs> Yeah. Rumor has it that ant is drawing Churchill's face. Or anyway. Was it some in one of the Jonathan Swifts maybe or somewhere the character that was walking around saying what I tell you three times is true or whatever? That's something like that. It always reminds me of 
this thing. And it makes sense to me. I'm sure there have been multiple empirical studies done about this effect. But to be a little bit referential or whatever, it seems plausible to me. I like, I've heard about this somewhere <laughs> and it sounds good. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Exactly. But one of the things, however, now that we're here and we're all like silliness about aesthetics, you know, because she goes on after the biases and she talks about, you know, ways to maybe mitigate against them. I'm not even going to go into that here because, I don't know, that's that's not where I want to go with this. Another episode. Or just read the book. (laughs) But there's something that she says and... I want to kind of go from there with it a little bit. And then you and I can kind of maybe, if you don't like what I've had to say, then you can be like, well, Ryan, what about this? And I'll be like, no. Here's a quote for you. Lots of quotes. If you sat through math class seeing equations as unsightly scribbles, you probably didn't go on to become a theoretical physicist. There aren't many physicists on record who complain that the laws of nature are appalling for the same reason there aren't any truck drivers who complain that big engines are ugly. We chose our profession because it appeals to us. That admission to me is my whole position on all of this. It's all relative. How do you know that even the heliocentric uh, model is a good one either you know like how do you know it's not just that it it, it's appealing as well now before they didn't like the big numbers but now that you can get everything to go around the sun hey that's even better all it's all a matter of taste beauty in the eye of the beholder one man's trash is another man's treasure i think that we can have like we've talked about earlier in other episodes our arguments our positions and they are provisional until something else comes along and we have to kind of go, oh, fuck, you know, that, that does that does hold together better than what I was thinking or whatever. But I kind of think that it's, you know, the way she makes it sound is that this whole appealing for beauty for these theoretical physicists is ugly. And to me, I don't want to even deal with it, you know, now that it's fucking considered ugly or what, you know what I mean? Like I obviously have never touched theoretical physics in any particular way, but it's one of those kinds of things. I, what are we after? And you and I are always talking about, you know, ways of getting better, you know, being more honest with yourself or whatever. I think this is being honest with ourselves. We are, we're biased and we can try to mitigate against biases, but in doing so, we don't know if we're tripping over other ones, uh, you know, while, while we're trying to be heroic in one area, you know, it's barriers and corridors, you know, to me is kind of how it looks. I have more to say, but I want to let you. That's, I think we're, I'm on board with that. We're very biased, but I'm a mitigator, I guess. I think that we can work hard to develop procedures, practices, institutions, and norms to attempt to identify and resist as many of our biases as possible. And then one can always say, 
Well, even during the process of that, you're subject to other biases. And that is fine, because then once we've made progress over the level one biases, then we can just run the run it through the machine a second time, uh, put it through the ringer and squeeze out a few more biases the next time, and then run it again and squeeze out some more. Maybe we never take it to zero, but it's still progress. In my book, I don't think you need to have absolutist goals in order to pursue projects. I don't think so either, but I, I would say that your project of progress gets, in my thinking, possibly bigger at every iteration, in that in order to keep track of everything, you have to you know, work even harder to, to, to make progress. Because, yeah, sure, you got this level one tier or whatever that of biases and uh, we figured out those, we're going to move to the next one. But I'm not so confident that when you move to the next tier, if it's even a tier at all, that you don't let it slip on the other ones that you just think you got over, you know, like it seems to me like there's, it's, it's a, it's, everything's in motion and where our attention or focus is, is where we do our best work and everything kind of at the penumbra and you know, whatnot gets worse, you know? And if we're, I think maybe one of the solutions is that if we're all trying to work together on these things, maybe we, our penumbra can overlap and we can kind of shed as much light as possible. And maybe that is what we're doing, but I don't know. I, I think about, you know, going through that box, box of scientific feedback loop or whatever. And it, it seems like it may be a bias in and of itself, so long as the potential reward for getting through a particular step remains, you know? And so you're always, you know, one of the things that she's talking about is things are getting a little too rigid and that they're running out of options. But in some ways they can always, it seems, tweak an option if they want, you know, tweak a variable, tweak a parameter. They're not like out of all options. It's just that she's sitting back sober and saying like, guys, like, you know, like the, they've got the paddles on the idea or something and they're shocking and they're like, again, shot, you know, like, because each time they think, no, this time it'll work. You know, it's the idea of, you know, the, the insane, the, the, whatever, aphorism or whatever it is, the idiom about, you know, insane, being insane is doing something over and over again, thinking it'll work. You know, I, I kind of wonder if that's sort of part of what we do, you know, and I think the way we make progress is collectively we accumulate the information and each person's born a complete idiot and it who knows which way it's going to go. Likely there are some community factors that play uh, play into it. But in general, hopefully we get access to this information the next time around. But I there's so much that I don't know that I also don't even know I don't know and all that kind of crap. And a lot of it happens in the past and it's, it's like, you know, that president, is it Truman or I don't remember which guy it was where he said, the only thing new in the world is the history you don't know. And I just think that is a, is a factor. And so as an individual trying to come up with ways to find solutions to the things I care about, 
I'm probably going to be doing things based on that, that feeling of solution, finding a solution. And whether or not I feel like it works, it matches up. It's, I don't necessarily think of it in terms of like pure beauty or whatever, but aesthetic, I would say, yeah, aesthetic is a big one. And one of the big aesthetics for me that we haven't mentioned is like, does this shit work? You know, does it like, that can be appealing in and of itself. Um, uh, how is working aesthetic? Doesn't, isn't the definition of does something work or not quantifiable? Because you tell me what it's supposed to do, then you run it and measure the result compared to the goal, and if it is if it meets the threshold, then it works. I think because it's like a picture of success. It's about I guess success and working. It it's a it, it has a like a feels component to it, a feeling component. Um, and it has a reward system involved. And to me, I guess that's kind of how I more or less detect when I'm near something aesthetic. I, I would say things are all sort of based on aesthetic kind of judgments, you know? I don't know if I'm saying this right or if I'm way off base. I don't aesthetics know is super either. specific because... or whatever, but I would say my feelings on aesthetics are very broad. Like it, Like, I do things because... What is it like, um, you know, Gandalf in uh, The Lord of the Rings, when he's like, oh, we'll go down this tunnel. And like, how do you know? And he's like, well, it smells better. You know, like it's that sort of, that to me is, is, is based on, is a aesthetic or whatever, you know? It's not, well, I'm still hung up on this. If you're even going to use the claim that works counts as aesthetics too. So let's go to the software development workshop because that's a phrase where I ran into you know make it work and it works and does it work all often you have your specs you know your this is the behavior this is what I need your app or your method or your model to accomplish there's clear benchmarks about what needs to be done, that the project manager comes by or whatever and says, here's what I need from you. you got a week. So then the team of coders could all tackle that project and accomplish it in three different ways. Whether or not their solutions work seems to me a much more objective, non-aesthetic, not judgmental question. Well, does the program accomplish the desired behavior in the specified amount of time or not. That's what it means to work. But then you could definitely talk about the three different code bases and have one person say, oh, well, this is a, this solution is beautiful. And these other ones, they're kind of ugly. And then we can talk more about what but I just don't know how the predicate or whatever it's called I don't know how works counts as aesthetic you know what I mean yeah I I understand what you're saying and I would just say that I think that you get something to work 
if it's been a lot of hard work and getting it to work, then having it do the thing you want it to do, I don't know how else to say it, but it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's a, it, I take a ton of pleasure in that. It appeals to me. It's attractive. You know, it's, it's this sort of positive kind of thing. I, I want to build on it more and improve it and, you know, get it even prettier. What if your rival enemy is the one who found the solution and theirs works? You don't think that's beautiful. You're pissed off that they got they stole it from you or something. Yeah, maybe. But what if I mean that seems to be tainted by the rival. What if I was given a solution to something and I didn't know it was my rival's and I saw it and I was like, "Fuck, that's great." You know. What if I was blind to the coloring of it? You know, and I could see that I am, you know, like, "Oh yeah, that's 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 it." And I think that's essentially what it is. Like when I'm, if I'm ever doing any kind of programming, I'll just go to a, you know, grab some code, you know, from someplace and, you know, even getting that to work and seeing the code and seeing how it is all coming together and what it does and how it functions. That to me is a, is a beautiful thing, you know? And so it could be a really horrible person. It could be my rival who did it and I didn't know, but I, I could put it in and it would be, It'd be great. It'd be you know attractive, and I would get a lot of these. Maybe maybe I'm nice. taking it I too far. I find it kind of hard to. Yeah. What I said? Maybe I'm taking it too far. That sounds nice. You find it hard to what? Yeah, I've, it sounds like you're going too far. I find it hard to believe. I I don't have that many experiences of beauty in my day to day life as I'm accomplishing things. Even if they work, a lot of times. It's you bang your head against a wall on some problem or whatever, and finally you get something to work. And it's not, wow, look, it, let me take a moment to bask in the beauty of this thing <laughs> that now works and how was it done. But it's more like, god damn it, fi- fucking next, like finally, okay, it's just an annoyance. I- well, I mean, did, did I say that like everything that works is aesthetic? Or I probably said everything is to some extent based on aesthetics, like judgments based on you know like well i'm mostly going off of that little anecdote you said where you need to go find a little code snippet to do some minor sub part of your program and you do that and it's beautiful the code is beautiful no not for me anyway most of the time anyway but you the biggest difference between us i think is that you seem to be at least okay with this if not actively in favor of maintaining or in uh, making there be more instances of people arriving at their decisions based on aesthetic judgments i wouldn't say i was in favor of it i just don't think that one should discredit ideas based on the fact that they you know that their creators are appealing to beauty or whatever like i think there are other i suppose ways to do that it just seems to me like from that uh that you know the the idea that we were talking about the argument of naturalness or whatever and like the heliocentric orbit model um versus a earth-centric or geocentric orbit 
I just thought that that's kind of, you know, you hear you've got, a, you know, people making these judgments based on, you know, what appeals to them. And it turns out that the one that we, in the end, think works better is also one that also kind of is sort of nice and tidy as well. But we just, we're missing, you know, uh, you know, a bit, the ability to measure the parallax or whatever. And then once we had that, we could, we could improve upon our models. But both decisions seem to be made for somewhat uh, aesthetic type reasons. And so I was just thinking, I don't like it when I, when somebody wants to push a certain agenda in a particular direction, when to me, it does not seem like it's always going to be, you know, something that is going to be the best way in or whatever, or a way to figure out the problem or, or, um, you know, rejection, rejection of beauty is not to me, a strong criteria. Um, maybe for theoretical physics, it's something to worry about, but I, because they're not getting anywhere or whatever. And if they keep going back to it, then it's sort of the insane person or something. But beyond that, I think throughout the rest of science, I don't think that it's a huge deal. And I think it turns out to be a lot more productive than unproductive. All right. What about this analogy that includes perhaps a minor equivocation, but we'll see if it gets anywhere or means anything to you. You're saying don't discredit a theory because it's beautiful, right? Well, don't say, well, you know, well, it's, oh, it's beautiful. And, you know, we, we got to be worried about that because the practitioners might be a little, uh, you know, in love with their child or whatever. Yeah. So what about this claim? I take a bunch of actors or musicians or something, and just get headshots. And then we talk about their success versus their, to the society that is, to their box office, judgments of their physical attractiveness. Mm -hmm. I would make the assumption or presumption that the actors who rank very low on physical attractiveness to their ticket buyers are probably, in general, better at acting. And the beautiful ones, I might be a little more skeptical about. You know, because based on... Well, yeah, you that's one of the criteria for getting on screen. If you're just physically attractive, you might have no talent and still get the job. But if you're not pleasing to look at, then you must be a pretty great actor to have been able to get the gig. Because who's who? both ugly and sucks and in movies? Um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I should just answer that question. <laughs> and then, John C. Riley. No, okay. But do you know how you get the point in general? Some people might find him attractive. No, that's... we. I get what your point is, but then I think I just sort of made, to an extent... My point that, so, you know, again, I have the beholder on that one, but still, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I would say, don't make your decision based on the beauty thing. Don't be like, well, I'm skeptical of them because I have this presumption that, you know, it, 
you know, if you're ugly, you must be a pretty damn good actor to be in the same crowd with this well, beauty okay, bunch. Okay, so I, I agree. Don't make your decision. Don't literally reject something because it's beautiful. Yeah. But that's our... That seems to be pretty much our point. We're saying don't accept something because it's beautiful. Well, here's what I would say. What if everybody was <laughs> so good? What if everyone was ugly and nobody wanted to go to the show and nobody ever wanted to become an actor and nobody ever wanted to do theater or whatever it was and then the fucking medium died? You know, like I'm saying beauty has its place with respect to motivating people to you know just simply walk towards it you know and to engage with something and so i think it has its place in that sense i don't know then science would be like custodial work or whatever somebody still does it but maybe they don't like it well there's I mean, lots you're just, of you're describing work that gets done. you're describing engineering sorry <laughs> <laughs> Any engineers out there? <laughs> Sorry. You don't find engineering beautiful, apparently. But no, a lot I mean, of, it's, of course it is. Do. It's all the beauty. That's what engineering is. It's just all the beauty created by science put to work. Ah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know. I don't know if we've closed this part or not, but I'm saying that my current position is if I evaluate a theory, if that's what we call them for now, as ranking high on an aesthetic appeal scale to the scientists that work in that field. I think that is cause for suspicion, greater suspicion, than if the theory were considered ugly by its own evaluators. Because, in general, the two points, one, aesthetic judgments are not epistemic, in my opinion. Whatever they are, they're caused by something other than reasoning. Might be caused by contingent factors about the body of the agent who's doing it. It might be caused by early developmental imprinting, whatever. But it's not something that's epistemically respectable. So... One of the things that I want my theories to be is epistemically respectable, but one of the things that might get a theory bonus points, even though it's non-epistemic, is that it's beautiful. So when I see a theory put forward that happens to be beautiful, doesn't mean it's wrong, but it makes me... I'm, I mean, I'm suspicious of everything in the first place, so maybe it doesn't matter... But I'm saying, if anything, it ought to make us more suspicious. I would say the my attempt to knock all those pins down is to appeal to anthropology and the study of cultures and what different cultures find beautiful or attractive or whatever. And that in some cases, I think there can be a group of people, whether they're tightly coupled and related or not, that think reasoning is this highly important thing. And it's so important that it stands above, you know, symmetry beauty or whatever you want to call it, like the, you know, judgments made for aesthetic purposes or whatever, like you were just saying. But I kind of think that it's more like some cultures 
like squishy kind of cartilaginousy kind of textures in their food and other cultures like crispy and crunchy. And that's what it sounds like to me. It doesn't sound like you have reached some better plateau. I think it's relative. I don't think it's better. I think that we can use all of them together and make a pretty damn good dish but I don't want to throw any one of them out or say that one is better than the other at any particular time um, in that, like, or not in any particular time, but throw out any one particular one or lower it always. You know, I don't, I don't agree with that. Interesting that this is coming up here because I often consider myself to be quite relativist and make points along those lines. But maybe, at least in this instance or at this moment, you're taking it further than I want to go. If you want to say everything is aesthetic, including all aspects of reasoning, I would agree that given any currently established canon of how reasoning works or how it ought to work, that there might be aesthetically based aspects of it, elements of it. But if there were, then that reasoning type ought to be able to notice those and then look more closely because, oh, maybe that's just here because it's beautiful. And I was kind of going back to just some notion of works. or Are you saying that there are no degrees of objectivity or... Yeah, I want to say that. I think that's what I want to say. And and let's just say it for right now. That's going to be my position. My position would be... Something along the lines of, there was that Douglas Hoffman guy, uh, Donald Hoffman. And he, you know, we've talked about this, but I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast. Um, And he talks about these jewel beetles in the Australian outback. And the females of this particular beetle um, have the shiny, dimpled, brown-yellow kind of wing casings or whatever. And they're covering their back, and it's the that whatever pattern is, you know, the sign or signal to the males that you know there's a female. And so, uh, in the same place, there's those bottles, beer bottles, brown beer bottles that have a sort of similar kind of quality, and they're bump, maybe a little bumpy and stuff too, and whatever it is. It's similar enough that the males just all swarm on the beer bottles, not knowing that it's a beer bottle. And, you know, then these ants come and literally eat them from their penises. It's crazy, but that's biology, folks. Anyway, it's a big problem for conservation. I don't think I would say, I am not convinced yet, and I don't think it's going to happen today unless you're feeling ultra heroic, but... We can save it for other episodes and stuff. You know, we've got plenty still to do. I'm still not convinced that that's not what we're doing, that that's not essentially what we do, is make all of our judgments based on some strange appeal to us as individuals for reasons that we don't have, and also for cultural reasons, that we're just riddled with our biases and our fallacies and 
all of these things. And maybe this is like, maybe you're going to start to sob now. Maybe this is where it goes, where I'm just like too extreme. And you're like, there must be progress, makeable progress. And, um, but I kind of just think that maybe I'm a little too this way on this subject area, but I just haven't encountered it yet where I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's the thing that, that makes the difference. I don't, appealing to reasoning is I guess clearly not working for me. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll feel differently and I'll be like, well, wait, what was I thinking or whatever. But right now, as it stands, I'm just not there yet. I'm saying, but there's my position, I guess, if I were able to even express it in my current state would be something like, as usual, I want to get rid of 100 and 0 and have everything on a gradient. And I think there are grades of more or less quote-unquote objective. I don't think anything that we have access to should be considered absolutely objective or true, but that certain things, for reasons, would be ranked higher or lower on that scale. And I feel like you're just trying to collapse everything down into the... They're just, nope, that whole scale is a mistake, and everything is zero on that. Like, ultimately, I don't think that there's the the scale. I think in given circumstances and situations, you've got that scale and it works. And you make your decisions based on that. But just the whole, like, at the end of the day, I don't... I don't even know what to think at the end of the day about Yeah, I mean, I usually just sob at the end of the day. That's All right, let's do it. it. Come on, um, drum roll. <laughs> yeah, so we maybe can revisit this or whatever, because yeah. a lot of the things you're saying sound like things I would say. <laughs> I gave you the ideas, and you're rejecting them now. Or, I don't know. I don't know. To me, it all comes back to this idea about confidence. And I think, or uh, I don't know, one of the things I will say confidently <laughs> is that it seems like it's a bit of an illusion or it's a delusion. Like you either like delude yourself or you're deliberately trying to fool somebody or whatever. I think we delude ourselves more often than anything. There's a few people who try and create the illusions, but I don't know. I, I don't, it's just, it's a weird uh, situation, but I, I arrived at this at the end of my um, graduate degree. Uh, I just kept getting pounded with ultra confidence, and I was just like, no, like, what? how can that be? How can there be so many different methods and so many different scientists even and different disciplines doing all these different things? Like, how is it that it, no, there's one way. You know, like, no, there isn't. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, I, uh, and so it's, oh, I can't, unfortunately, that, like, the, with the cow branding iron just got, you know, burned into my brain. That all, you know, moderately traumatic experience. <laughs> uh, I don't know. And maybe I'll turn, maybe I'll turn it around and I'll join the rest of you guys. Or whatever, join you at least. Last call. I mean, I agree that there's there that we shouldn't think there's just one way. 
But if I want to say I think there's more than one way, then I have a burden to make arguments for it. I don't just get to say, one way, ugh. That doesn't appeal to me, which seems like how you're operating. No, I think arguments can be appealing. Come on, dude. But in this case, weren't you the one that you just described? That was a case of you just being aesthetic, right? You didn't like it. It grossed you out that they were trying to say there's one way. No, it grossed me out that they were thinking that they had access to what's what and that they weren't acknowledging that it was an appealing thing to them because it worked for them and because for them those were the problems that attracted them the most. And the solutions that they they had been working on or that they already had learned or whatever, making improvements on, that all was part of their culture. Yeah, I'm just letting you down everywhere tonight. That's what this has been, is just a, a lead-up to you being like, you're too extreme, even for me. And me being like, I don't know, I don't feel extreme. Uh, I'm a you, fool. You don't think... Well, hmm. You don't think that's an extreme position to say that all judgment, even what we think is epistemic judgment, is mere aesthetics? I worry that we don't know ourselves well enough to be able to, you know, confidently pass real, you know, judgment on that. We're learning, but I don't know how far along we are. Can you change what you find beautiful? Yeah, taste change with age. Can you do it through a process intentionally? I don't know. I've never really tried, but I think you could. But it just depends on what bias you're jumping to, I imagine. <laughs> you know? Uh, I was thinking that most people would say no to that. I don't. I might be wrong. But the way that I hear the beauty stuff talked about it's like, well, you know, I can't help it. This is what I, this is what tastes good to me, what looks good to me. This is what I find beautiful, and that just is what it is. I don't know why. I can't help it. I can't really change it. It might change over the decades, but I can't help that either. It just either happens or doesn't happen. And that we're very helpless in the face of beauty. But that doesn't seem to apply to anyone who's open to being persuaded by arguments. I think I can be persuaded to accept something that I find ugly. Yeah. I think that you can be persuaded to accept something that you find less beautiful than something else, but the persuasion bit, I think, is part of the appeal, right? The conflict? I don't see why... Well, yeah, are you just saying now you have two suitors... Uh, the new persuasion argument you're faced with being played off against the old belief that the argument is asking you to abandon or change your mind about, and that it's still just an aesthetic judgment because, well, I guess you find the argument prettier now than the old belief. So you can say that, and that's this kind of move. It's the same move, I think, that the egoists make in morality or whatever you can always tell a story where it's selfish and you can maybe always tell a story where it's 
making an aesthetic judgment, but I don't know if that's the best story. And then part of the point was, if I can find something about beauty, and I was wondering if this helpless or fixed aspect of it, but that doesn't apply to what I want to call epistemic judgments or whatever. Those were not helpless in the face Why of do we you can... Care? Why do you want control of everything? You know what I mean? Like, there's some things you just don't have control of. Why can't you just say, well, the line after that, I can work with. But beyond that, I am just like everyone else. That, to me, is sort of... you. That's where I would say you're making an aesthetic decision based on your the ugliness of that you know idea that you have no control and that all of the decisions that you make are kind of you know based on what you find appealing like i don't know maybe that's i don't know if i'm begging the question or not or something in there but that's like i don't understand you know is it that? Is it this? You you know you want to be able to say at the end of the day, I got this thing, and it's, you know, it it allows me to you know, kind of orient myself in the universe or whatever. And I I, I don't say some that you can't. You know, like aspect of uh, control freakness or something where I really like being in control, and then there's this line where it goes dark and on the other side there's no control and therefore I refuse to step across it because that sounds so unappealing. You know, I or someone. I don't think I'm like that personally, but... Um, that could be. That's a possible explanation. I would look at that situation right now more as simply a refusal to accept a hard limit... And wanting to push that boundary and say, well, okay, at this moment it appears as though this is something uncontrollable, but that doesn't mean that a better agent couldn't control it. And since I have projects and concerns and wants and desires, I want to make them happen. But then you're saying, well, okay, we'll go to that step then. Pick whatever your last step is and label that beauty label that aesthetic judgment as the foundation and then everything else that grows out of it also counts. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm, I guess I'm saying tonight. <laughs> it's a, it's a sticky problem. Yeah. Can you at least like feign sobbing? Can you at least give us something? All right, hang on. I got to think about my dead dog or whatever. <laughs> no. <laughs> the time I sat on Chirpy, the parakeet. Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-